you'll turn to the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to begin reading at verse 8. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been, has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now I want you to hold the place there because I want to read these other verses later and understand what's happening is that Paul is confronting a young man with the burden of the proclamation or the communication of the gospel. And he's saying in essence that it begins with a deep love for it. We talk about the things we love. I think maybe one of the great problems of living in a country where there is the glut of the gospel, where there's a sermon on every channel and a service on every corner, that we begin to take it for granted and we don't really have a, an appreciation for the gospel. Somebody said that we need to send about 90% of all the Christians overseas to some of these third world countries, let them live a few years, so that when they come back they'd have a greater appreciation for it. I think that's what he's doing in verse 8. He's encouraging them to have a greater love and appreciation for the gospel to the extent that we're not ashamed of it. Now there is a tendency to be ashamed of the gospel. If that's not true, then why does he talk so much about it or write so much about it? He refers to that being ashamed in verse 8 and verse 12 and verse 15. And not only are we not to be ashamed of the, of the message, but not ashamed of the messenger. I know a lot of people who are not ashamed of the gospel, but they're kind of embarrassed about being around the people of the gospel. Now why is it so important that there be this great love and appreciation for the word or the gospel? I think there are two reasons. One is, is that if you don't have a great appreciation for it, it causes you to conceal it. It, it destroys or silences your testimony. The fact is this morning that the main reason why we don't communicate the gospel is because, not because we don't know how. I mean, we know how to do that. The main reason we don't communicate the gospel is because we're too embarrassed. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to bring it up and we don't know 
what people think of us if we do or how they're going to respond to it. The fact is, most of us are ashamed of the gospel. Now, is it possible that a person would be ashamed of, of Christ or the gospel of Christ? Is that possible? When Hitler and his Nazis were um, wreaking havoc on Germany, they built Auschwitz. Four million Jews were exterminated in Auschwitz. In February of 1941, a man by the name of Maximilian Cobb was arrested. He was a Franciscan priest who was hiding these Jews to keep them from the Nazis. And he was found out, arrested, and sent to Auschwitz. In July of that same year, there was a prison break in the section where Maximilian Cobb was incarcerated, and some men escaped. And a requirement or a rule of Auschwitz was that when somebody attempted an escape, ten men had to be executed at random. And so they brought all these people out in this compound, and this SS commander had the role, and he began to turn the pages and call names at, at random. And he called the name Francicic Konapjicic. Now Konapjicic was a, a, a sergeant in the Polish army. When they called his name, he began to scream, God have mercy, I have a wife and children. And Maximilian Cobb stood up and said, I'll take his place. And for some strange reason, the SS troops allowed him to take Konapjicic's place. So they took Maximilian Cobb and nine other men, stripped them naked, and put them in the basement of Auschwitz and starved them to death. On August the 14th of that same summer, there were two men pitifully alive, Maximilian Cobb and one other, and they shot them in the heart and killed them. Konapjicic survived Auschwitz. He lives today in Warsaw, Poland. In the backyard of his little white frame house, he has a monument erected to Maximilian Cobb. And on August the 14th, every year, he makes a three-hour journey to Auschwitz and remembers the man who died for him. Now, if you were to ask Konapjicic, are you ashamed of Maximilian Cobb he probably would say, that's the most obscene thing I've ever heard anybody ever say. I built a monument for the man who died for me. Is it possible that a man would be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul said that our lives are to be living monuments of him. It is true that some of us are ashamed of the gospel. It causes us to conceal it. And it causes us to compromise it, to water it down, to make it more palatable. And so Paul is saying in his last words to this man, if you have a deep appreciation for the gospel, be ready to do two things for it. Be ready to safeguard it and be ready to suffer for it. Now safeguarding the gospel means two things. It means that I guarantee its proclamation. The best way to lose truth is to not talk about it. In order to preserve truth, there must be this constant rehearsing of truth and retelling of truth and communicating truth. 
This is a passing on religion. So the Apostle Paul says that what you have received from me, you pass it on to faithful men that will continue to pass it on and guarantee that it's passed on because the best way to lose truth is not to talk about it. This is a pass it on religion. A 19th century Sunday school teacher led a 19th century shoe clerk to Christ. You probably won't recognize the name of the teacher. You probably will, the name of the shoe clerk. The teacher's name was Kimball. The shoe clerk's name was Dwight L. Moody. Now Dwight L. Moody became an evangelist and he passed on his faith to a man named Frederick Meyer. And Frederick Meyer preached on college campuses and he led Wilbur Chapman to Christ. And he passed on his faith to Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman worked in the YMCA and he decided he'd have an, a, a revival meeting in Charlotte, North Carolina and he invited a former baseball player to come and lead it. His name was Billy Sunday. They had such a tremendous revival in this crusade in Charlotte, North Carolina that the community leaders decided they'd have another one the next year. And so they invited a man by the name of Mordecai Ham to preach that revival. And while Mordecai Ham was passing on his faith, Billy Graham heard him preach and was converted. And the beat goes on and on and on down to you. For the greatest enemy of truth is not a lie. Truth can stand a lie. And truth can bring a lie out into the light and discredit it. And the greatest enemy of truth is not heresy. The greatest enemy of truth is your silence. And once you have lost truth, it's so hard to reclaim it. And the greatest revival movements of our time, called the Great Awakenings in this country, were not the proclamations of new truth, but the rediscovery of old truth. Some of you might think that the Reformation began when Martin Luther began to proclaim a new truth. It didn't happen that way. The Reformation began when Martin Luther rediscovered and reclaimed and retaught the old truth that is the judgment of God and the responsibility of man to Him. So while you're silent, you are, you are a part of the destruction and the loss of truth. Guarantee its proclamation. Guarding the gospel means that I guarantee its purity. Now Paul talks in here about being sure that these words you hear are sound words. He's talking about the purity of the truth. Now you would have had to, had to have lived on another planet for the last 20 years and make a little visit here today if you've not heard of the controversy that's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention concerning the purity of the Scripture, its relevancy and its inerrancy. And I want to say a, a, a word about that and remind us of verse 13, that Paul is suggesting that there is a way, a manner in which the purity of the gospel is to be guaranteed in faith, he says, and in love. Now, if you want to tune out this, you better tune it out if you don't want to hear this. I'm fixing to share deep conviction that I, uh, you know, humble and accurate opinion. 
more than that, it's a conviction. I need to start by saying that sometimes I am embarrassed to be a Southern Baptist. Now, I'm not saying that I'm embarrassed to be a child of God or a Christian, but sometimes I'm embarrassed to be a Southern Baptist. Not because we are unorthodox, but because we are obnoxiously orthodox in some places, some cases. And I'm convinced that the manner in which we guarantee orthodoxy is as important as the orthodoxy itself. And some people are turned off to our guarantees of orthodoxy. I don't blame them. The, sometime Jesus was turned off by egotistical, self-righteous Pharisees and sometimes that's the way we present ourselves. Some of the most bitter battles are fought over orthodoxy. Jesus said, By this you shall know, shall all men know that you're my disciples if you're orthodox. Now if you know anything about scripture, you know that's not what he said. What he did say was, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. An amazing quality that Jesus possessed was that he loved people unconditionally regardless of their viewpoint. He loved and accepted them and they came flocking to him. And I'm convinced that more people are attracted by the manner which we handle the gospel than by the gospel itself. Now this is not, Paul talks about here about his own sufferings and he calls on them to suffer. It's not the first time. In fact, Paul writes to the Philippians that epistle of joy and he says, to you it's not just been granted to believe but to suffer for his sake. Now, I'll admit that when I come to this, this passage and other passages that talk about suffering for Christ, it seems like that's irrelevant to us, to me. I mean, how many people do you know have been thrown to the lions or stoned because of their faith. But I'm going to say this morning that you know, whether we know it or not, there are a lot of people who do suffer physically for the gospel. Tom Ellett tells about visiting some family in Romania, Poland, somewhere in one of those eastern countries. He visited this home of this pastor who was imprisoned for his faith. And he had a teenage son he had not seen but twice since that son was an infant. He was put in prison when the baby, when that boy was a baby. Now he was a teenage son and he hadn't seen him for, he hadn't seen him for years. Seen him only twice in that period of time. And I confess, I'll have to confess that when I read about people suffering for the gospel, my first reaction is to say, well, you know, God sure is good to us that we don't have to suffer. And then I remember that verse in the book of Acts, and I wish I had forgotten it for good, that says that these disciples got together and they thanked God that they were worthy to suffer for His sake. Now listen to me. The fact that you and I don't have to suffer for the gospel may not be a sign of God's blessing on us. It may be a sign of our unworthiness. 
For we all are aware of that verse of Scripture, and we quote it often, that God is not going to put on us any more than we're able to bear. And He must know that we couldn't bear suffering, for He doesn't permit it. I use that word loosely. It may not be a sign of God's blessing that you don't have to suffer for the gospel. It may be more of a sign that He doesn't consider you worthy to do so. For the more honor that people had with Christ, the more they suffered. Eleven of the disciples of Jesus, the last twelve, all died martyrs' deaths. Only one died of old age. None died of boredom. And all of them were martyrs. And the more I read the trends of our time, the more I'm convinced that your children or your grandchildren will one day pay for the name of Christ if the trend continues. There is physical suffering. There is social suffering. Listen to me carefully. Verse 15 says, You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me. There was a time when the Apostle Paul was the most popular preacher in Asia Minor. I mean, people came to hear him preach from all around. Some of them stayed up all night to hear him preach. And you're wondering if I'm going to be out by 12? They stayed all night to hear him preach. But now nobody hears him. Everybody has deserted him. What Paul is saying, listen to me, young people. What Paul is saying is this, that if you ever get to the place where you love the gospel so much that you're not ashamed of it, you're going to lose some friends. As a matter of fact, you may be judged by the friends you don't have rather than the friends you have. There's social suffering, and there is, for want of a better term, intellectual suffering. Now let me explain what I'm talking about here. One of the things that distresses me today is, the, is that we feel like that we have to make the gospel intellectually acceptable. A lady said to me not long ago, she said, you Baptists, you Baptists are not sophisticated enough. Talk about too much about the blood and about hell and, and you preach too long and loud. You know, my first reaction to that was, I wish we could do something to make it more acceptable to her. That's my first reaction. I'll have to confess. Folks, you don't have to make the gospel intellectually acceptable. Now, I'm not making a political endorsement. I learned a long time ago, that's why my hair is so gray, that you don't get into the political business. Preachers don't. I'm not making a political endorsement, but I am going to say this. Regardless of whether you agree with the vice president or not politically, there is a truth in his statement that there is in this country developing a liberal elitism that says, in essence, if you believe this stuff, you're ignorant, an ignorant buffoon. And preachers are these goofballs, you know, that can't do anything else for a living and and people are ignorant, if you, if you believe this, now young people hear me, I want to say something just to you, that if you believe 
that Adam was the first man, really the first man, and that there is there, there, there's a virgin birth and a, and a literal hell and, and, a, um, and that Jonah was swallowed by a real fish, you're going to suffer intellectual suffering for that. If not now, it won't be long. And are you ready for that? That's the question. Now, I had this sermon over at this point until yesterday. And all of a sudden it dawned on me what Paul is talking about in these last verses. Now listen to them. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelius and Hermogenes. I have no idea who these men were. Couldn't find out who they are. But I'm assuming that they were leaders of the church, leaders in a church, then he goes on to say, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well about services he rendered at Ephesus. And I have a, an opinion that... Um, Onesiphorus was a leader of a church at Ephesus. But let me show you what all of a sudden just dawned on me. Lest you think that, that guarding the gospel's proclamation and purity means that you're going to have to put on a clerical collar and get into a pulpit or take a Bible and go down on a street corner somewhere. Paul says, now let me show you, let me describe to you, let me give you a picture of what I'm talking about. And he brings this man, Onesiphorus, to the scene. And he says, in essence, listen to this, this is how I want you to do it. And he just kind of, as a postscript, he just kind of, as an aside, refers to his leadership of a church at Ephesus. And what he's talking, what he does emphasize is his ministry to Paul in his chains. And I remember what Jesus said. He said, I was hungry and you didn't give me anything to eat. And I was naked and you gave me no clothes. And I was in prison, you didn't even come to see me. And they just said, well now, hey, wait a minute now, when did that happen? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. In other words, the way you treat them is the way you treat me. And when you put this all together, it makes so much sense that the way to represent the gospel to the world is to serve the forgotten and the ignored. When Francis of Assisi decided he was going to leave his wealth and become a servant of God, he, we don't understand this kind of stuff. He stripped off naked and walked out of the city walls, city, the city. And he's walking down this road and he saw this leprous beggar by the side of the road and he's kind of eased around him as far away from him as he could get. But as he got past him, he turned and went back and he embraced this leper. 
And after they embraced, he, he started again on his journey, and he took a few steps, and when he turned and looked back at the leper, he was gone. And until he died, Francis of Assisi thought that that leper was Jesus. Maybe he was. You want to know how to see Jesus? You go down to this nursing home out here and you sit by one of those old ladies out there and steady her hand as she takes food to her mouth. You want to see Jesus and serve Him? You go out here at the hospital and you ask one of those nurses to take you to a room of somebody that's never had a visit. You, you want to see Jesus and serve Him? You go down in the hall of your office complex tomorrow talk to that man who's going through a divorce and misses his children. Or you get in your car tomorrow and you head over to Dallas and you go down in the southeast part of town if you're brave enough and find one of those old bag ladies out there and give her a sandwich. I'm not talking about a sermon. Give her a sandwich. Sandwich. One of those old ladies that's just spent the night under an overpass sleeping on a piece of cardboard. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is this. If you have a, an appreciation and a love for the gospel, you'll live it. And you won't care what price it takes to do it. And then he tells us that we don't have to wonder about where we're going to get the strength to do it because he says in verse 8, according to the power of God. And you've quoted that verse of Scripture, My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. According to His riches and glory, He'll supply strength in a manner consistent with His supply. How much am I to suffer for the gospel? As much as He grants me the ability to do. Somebody comes up to you this morning and says, here are my keys, drive my car. You say, how far? He says, as long as there's gas in the tank. Hear me, this is I'm through. Our Lord will not require you to take one step beyond His resource. Let's pray together. Our Father, in a day that's burdened about hopelessness and helplessness and despair, give us a love for this Word, the living Word and the written Word, to the extent that we are willing to guard it, to suffer for it. Count us worthy this morning to suffer for the gospel. For I pray in Jesus' name, and I ask it for his sake. Now, in the early service this morning, look here. A young man came, an adult. A man came to profess his faith in Christ publicly to be baptized and what he said was, I'm not ashamed to do this. 
I wonder if there's a, someone here this morning who would step out in this aisle and come and publicly conf confessing your faith to Christ, not ashamed of it, taking a stand for Jesus and not embarrassed about it. Maybe you need to come and unite with the fellowship of this church as many of these college students have done in the last few days and weeks or maybe you want to come this morning just to say you know I've not been faithful to the responsibility God has laid on my heart but I want to make a new commitment to that while we stand to sing we invite you to come